good to see you for another week on Diffusion, your weekly dose of everything that's new, exciting, and will sometimes just bizarrely funny in the world of science. I'm Jackie Pepper, but first, let's get up to speed with this week's news from Ian Wolfe. Tomatoes prevent asthma, except when they cause it. The mainstream press are running with a story about how eating tomatoes helps prevent asthma because of certain compounds in the fruit that are also found in apples. As a sufferer of asthma who was made sick to the stomach by tomatoes, I knew that tomatoes have a dark side for people who suffer asthma. Asthma attacks are commonly triggered by allergies. Tomatoes can cause asthma attacks through cross allergies and through gastric reflux. Cross allergies are when a food protein and an inhaled protein get together in your blood and start an allergic reaction, such as tomato absorbed in your stomach and grass pollen inhaled in your lungs. It's sometimes only the two in combination that trigger an asthma attack, and only after a certain level of absorption. So it can be difficult for people suffering from asthma to work out what caused the attack. Gastric reflux is when the acid in your stomach comes back up to your throat and is commonly triggered by tomatoes. This irritation can also be enough to set off an asthma attack. Nomato sell products to substitute the flavour for people who have had to eliminate tomato from their diet. You could still eat Nomato-based pizzas. Some people give up all vegetables in the nightshade family as part of a strict macrobiotic diet to ease symptoms of other inflammatory illnesses such as arthritis. This would mean giving up capsicum, potatoes and corn as well as tomatoes. Sadly, for asthmatics trying to eat a balanced diet without nightshade vegetables, all the potato substitutes sold online are for Atkins freaks, trying to avoid carbohydrates. In the Nottingham University study, eating five apples per week was correlated with just as little wheezing as eating four tomatoes. Far fewer people have allergic reactions to apples, and there are less cross-allergic reactions recorded. So if you're suffering from asthma attacks, eat more apples and leave the tomatoes alone. The Annals of Improbable Research magazine has awarded the 2006 Ig Nobel Prize for Mathematics to our very own Piers Barnes and Ms Nick Svensson of CSIRO. The team figured out how many photos to take of a group of people to be sure of getting at least one picture when nobody is blinking. They have a formula. The secret formula is 1 over 1 minus xt to the power of n, where x is the number of blinks, t is the shutter time, and n is the number of people framed in the photo. All things being equal, and nobody's throwing sand in their faces, people's blinks will be independent. It turns out that the average number of blinks made by a person while their photo is being taken is 10 per minute. The average blink lasts about 250 milliseconds, but a camera shutter only stays open about 8 milliseconds in good indoor light. Putting all this together, they found that for groups of less than 20 people, you divide the number of people by 3, if there's good light, or a decent flash, and 2 if the light's bad. And that's how many photos you have to take to get at least one picture where everybody's eyes are open. Prize winner Nick Swenson accepted the award saying that CSIRO has an ongoing responsibility to help inspire and educate about science. Ig Nobel Prizes honour research that first makes people laugh and then makes them think and blink. A cheap electric car from India is too expensive for Australia. The would-be importer Adrian Ferraretto has been told he needs to crash test 20 new cars to meet Australian road safety regulations for cars, or else the electric car he is allowed to drive around Adelaide will have to be shredded. 
He and his supporters argue that because the car is less than 400 kilograms and drives at speeds less than 65 kilometres per hour, it should only have to pass the same road safety tests as motorbikes and motor scooters. It's classified as a quadricycle in Europe and Asia, not as a car. The cars use conventional lead-acid batteries for a direct current DC motor and can drive for 80 kilometres after a seven-hour charge. They're smaller than a Mini and seat two with a hatchback for groceries. These cars are what the Tesla Motor Company did not want its cars to look like. They're the polar opposite to the American Tesla Roadster, which reaches speeds of 300 kilometres per hour and can drive for 400 kilometres after only a three-hour recharge. However, these cars are a tenth the cost of the Tesla Roadster, so it's fair enough that they're not as fast, sexy or powerful. Like all electric cars, they cost from two cents a kilometre to nothing to run, depending on whether you have solar panels on your garage roof. Known as the G-Wiz in Europe, these cars have met the EU's have met the EU road safety requirements. In London, they're exempt from the $1,500 car congestion charge and get free parking in many councils. In California, there's a $4,000 bonus paid towards any electric car purchase, which will get you a third of the way to paying for the whole thing. Mr. Ferraretto runs a solar power products business and hopes to sell the Reavers as a package with solar panels for the house so that no fossil fuel needs to be used to power the car. However, he can't afford to import 20 cars to Australia for the sole purpose of destroying them. You'd drive a Reaver, but you'd be thinking of the Tesla Roadster. Thank you, Ian. Have you ever been freaked out in the surf thinking that you saw a shark fin, which was actually a dolphin fin? Ever wondered why tiger quolls are called native cats or koalas native bears, even though neither are remotely related to cats or bears? You are an observer of convergent evolution, as Lachlan Watmore reports. Have you ever noticed that certain animals look or function a lot like other animals, despite being very distant in terms of relatedness? For example, if you put an Australian marsupial mouse next to a common European house mouse, only the different colours of their coats make it easy to tell them apart. This is in spite of the fact that a whale is more closely related to the European mouse than is the marsupial, because both whales and European mice are placental mammals, while the marsupial isn't. It's a marsupial. This is called convergent evolution. I'll address that in a moment, but first I just need to get something off my chest. One thing that I can find a little irritating now and then is the propensity of certain people to use words they don't really know the meaning of. One word that comes to mind is evolution. A lot of people think that evolution means progress. It doesn't. Progress implies an ongoing program of improvement that's largely independent of outside influence. However, if you know the mechanism of evolution, you'll soon realise that outside influence is its bread and butter. And if you don't, let me briefly fill you in. Say you have a population of creatures who are being preyed upon by a carnivore. Those of the population who are fast and can escape the carnivore will survive, and the slow will be eaten. So the next generation will be descended from fast creatures and will, on average, be fast themselves. Take that another generational step and assume that the predator can still catch some of them. 
those that survive will thus be the fastest of the fast. Take that along another couple of steps and you end up with very swift animals indeed, perhaps being preyed on by very fast predators who evolved step by step with them to avoid starvation. So evolution is driven by a selective force or pressure. Biologists call it natural selection and a lot of the time the selective pressure is outside the population. Evolution therefore doesn't mean progress. More accurately, it means adaptation. If the selective pressure isn't there, as likely as not, evolution doesn't happen. When living things first appeared on the Earth, they had a finite number of habitats to occupy. They thus evolved to fit the particular habitats they found themselves in. One habitat was the atmosphere, and sure enough, living things sooner or later took to the air. First, according to current theory, were the insects. Next came the pterosaurs, the flying reptiles of the dinosaur age. Then came birds, descendants of dinosaurs with specialised hollow bones and feathers. And finally, there were bats, flying mammals with their own sophisticated aerial gadget, echolocation. And here's the cool part. This collection of animals did not have a flying ancestor from which they could all claim descent. There was no archaeo-arthropodic dino-ornithobat granddaddy who gave rise to them. This means that organic flight evolved on Earth no less than four times. Now, I know that insects, pterosaurs, birds and bats don't have the similarities to each other that our two mice do, but they certainly have one thing in common. They can all fly. And the fact that flight evolved several times in groups of creatures largely unrelated to each other gives us a classic example of convergent evolution. One of my gurus, the late great paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould, emphasised randomness and probability when addressing where the evolution of life on Earth might lead. He asked his readers to, quote, rewind the tape, unquote, and imagine what life would be like if natural history was allowed to run its course over again. Thinking about it, I can certainly see very different forms evolving, but I can also see these forms adapting to the terrain in which they find themselves deployed. Insects have wings and the associated musculature, sensors and coordination to enable locomotion through the air. Similarly, pterosaurs, bats and birds have or had the requisite equipment to fly through the air. So what's the common factor? Air. These four groups converged in terms of flight because the atmosphere, which would still be there if we we ran the tape, provided a habitat to exploit and life, with its incredible ability to evolve, took advantage of it. Keeping this in mind, let's have a look at some other examples of convergent evolution. Both dolphins and sharks have conspicuous dorsal fins, but despite sharks being fish and dolphins being mammals. This is because they both live in water and are fast swimmers, requiring hydrodynamic stability at high speed. Porcupines, hedgehogs and echidnas have all evolved spiny protrusions of their skins, despite the fact that porcupines are rodents, hedgehogs are insectivores and echidnas are monotremes. The Australian platypus and the North American beaver have similar lifestyles, living in fluvial environments, digging a burrow in the case of the platypus and building a dam in the case of the beaver. They also look similar, with a flattened tail, webbed feet and streamlined coat. However, beavers are placental mammals and platypuses, like the echidna, are monotremes. 
And the list goes on. Wolves and thylacines, Australian thorny devils and Texan horned lizards, the evolution of several similar compounds to combat freezing in several unrelated species, the list is large. I'd love to go into detail and talk more about the inevitability of a certain planet producing certain living forms, but time doesn't permit me. So I'm going to finish by reading a passage from Richard Dawkins, the great British biologist who has a thing for eyes. It seems that life, at least as we know it on this planet, is almost indecently eager to evolve eyes. We can confidently predict that a statistical sample of reruns of evolutionary life on Earth would culminate in eyes. And not just eyes, but compound eyes like those of an insect, a prawn or a trilobite, and camera eyes like ours or a squid's, with colour vision and mechanisms for fine-tuning the focus and the aperture. Also, very probably, parabolic reflector eyes like those of a limpet and pinhole eyes like those of a nautilus, the latter-day ammonite-like mollusk in its floating coiled shell. And if there is life on other planets around the universe, it is a good bet that there will also be eyes based on the same range of optical principles as we know on this planet. There are only so many ways to make an eye, and life as we know it may well have found them all. That was Lachlan Watmore on Convergent Evolution. If you want to read more on the subject, Lachlan recommends Wonderful Life by Stephen Jay Gould and The Ancestor's Tale, The Blind Watchmaker and The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins.
That was Lightning Strikes by Oppenini and the Raindrops. And you're listening to Diffusion, the science program being broadcast not only around Australia, but around the globe. Speaking of the wide world, our New York correspondent is reporting into us about fooling the mind. Here's Kashina Allen discussing the cognitive mechanisms for ventriloquism. Out of the mouths of dummies, ventriloquism. Funny, skillful and generally entertaining, ventriloquism is also a lot more. It's a great demonstration of the flexibility of the human brain. Originally touted as a form of witchcraft or demonic possession, ventriloquism has been distrusted for centuries. And rightly so. It's a case of our eyes deceiving our ears. When your eyes look at an object, or more correctly pick up the light reflecting from that object, the signal is mapped spatially onto the retina. This means that if two objects are close to each other, the neurons picking up the location of those objects will also be close to each other. Not so with the ears. Sound waves combine at each ear and mechanically vibrate the basilar membrane, a tapering organ curled inside the spiral cochlea of the inner ear. High frequencies, high-pitched sounds, vibrate the narrow end and low frequencies the wide end of this membrane. Sounds are thus mapped by frequency, not spatial location. This means that to estimate where a sound comes from, the brain conducts a complex calculation based on the signals received at each ear. This can make localising sounds harder and less accurate than localising visual objects. So we trust our eyes over our ears. A good ventriloquist moves their dummy perfectly in sync with their words. At the same time, the ventriloquist does not move their lips. Your ears claim the sound is coming from the ventriloquist, but your eyes tell you it's coming from the dummy's mouth. The eyes win. This ventriloquist effect has been used to pull streams of words apart. Charles Spence, a researcher from the University of Oxford, used a loudspeaker to play a series of words next to a video of someone's lips mouthing some of those words. Listeners heard the lip-synced words coming from the television and the non-lip-synced words coming from the loudspeaker, so long as the loudspeaker and the television were not far apart. But will we trust our eyes over our ears in every situation? Two scientists, David DeLay and David Burr, tested this further. They degraded an image, in their case turning a large clear dot into a fuzzy blob, thus reducing the accuracy of the visual cues, and found that as the exact location of the blob became harder to pinpoint, observers started to trust their ears over their eyes. When the blob was very fuzzy, they would go so far as to assume its location was at the same place as an accompanying sound. Alain and Burr called this the reverse ventriloquist effect. How persistent is a ventriloquist illusion? When one light flash is played a short distance to the left of a sound, the ventriloquist effect means that you believe them both to have come from the same location left of the actual sound source. After a long series of such flashes and tones, a listener asked to locate a single sound source will assume it's to the left of its actual location. Called the post-ventriloquist effect, it appears that you can fool your auditory system into recalibrating its sound localization plans. Thankfully, the effect doesn't last long and your ability to correctly localize sound returns shortly. This is an example of neuroplasticity. Your brain can reprogram itself if needed. But why would we evolve with our brains so easily fooled? Sound moves at a fraction of the speed of light. Thus your ears and eyes never really agree on the distance an object is in front of you. Think of the delay between seeing a lightning strike and hearing the thunder. To identify things coming towards you, such as tigers or buses, it helps if your brain can recognise the sound and visual picture come from the same source. 
If an object is moving, the current visual location will be more accurate than the auditory as the light will reach you before the sound. It is in your own interest to be a little flexible on location to allow you to tell that the sound and picture come from the same thing. It helps you recognize an object and assess any possible threat. Realigning your auditory system with your visual system may be a developmental issue as well. Perhaps babies originally learned to accurately localize sounds by aligning them to the location of visual objects. Understanding the ventriloquist effect doesn't make it any less entertaining. In fact, it may help someone appreciate the skills involved. But in terms of science, it also provides useful information on how the visual and auditory systems interact. That was Kashina Allen discussing how easy it is to fool your ears with ventriloquism. Now, at the start of the show, I did mention the bazaar, and what better example than last week's Ig Nobel Prizes? Mike, I believe you're going to bring us up to speed on what happened. Well, on Thursday night, October the 5th, we had the Ig Nobel Prizes for 2006 awarded. And one of the ones that grabbed my attention was a guy by the name of Howard Stapleton of Wales. And he won the Nobel Prize for Peace, sorry, the Ig Nobel Prize for Peace. And he, he invented an elec- electromechanical teenage repellent, a device that makes annoying noise designed to be audible to teenagers, but not to adults and for later using the same technology to make telephone ringtones that are audible to teenagers but not to their teachers. The theory is that um, as you get older, your hearing deteriorates and above a certain frequency as you get older, above, say, 25, you can't hear. So above 17 kilohertz, you can't hear. And this ringtone or this security device is played at above 17 kilohertz and only teenagers can hear it. So if your phone rings, only the teenagers can hear it. So, Jackie, you do a pretty good impersonation of this sound, I hear. That's a bit rude. Are you saying that I sound annoying? Well, do we want to hear? I've got it on file here. If we want to have a... What we have is... uh, It's not the exact one that is used in mobile phones. It's been altered so that we can actually hear it properly, Uh so so anyone Um, can hear it. I have to say, I'm a little sceptical that a phone speaker can actually make that higher frequency sound in the first place so faithfully. That's another point. But this is what we're supposed to not be able to hear. Now, get ready, because it's, it's quite annoying. I can see whilst they had it as a teenage repellent. Yeah, I think that's plenty. Thanks, Matt. Yes, it's, it's, uh, it's not just, that's not just feedback. We didn't just put the microphone up to a speaker. That's the actual... So voice. hopefully all our young, youthful listeners out there were able to hear that and haven't switched us off. I have seen teenagers with these on their mobile phones, and I just think... Guys, that's just lazy. When I was in school, I used to be able to type text messages under the desk. It's called silent mode. (laughs) Whatever happened to the days of skill? Well, technology is just taking it all out of our hands now, isn't it? But this was one of the Ig Nobel Prizes. The Ig Nobel Prizes are vastly different from the Nobel Prizes, aren't they? That's right. Well, one of the interesting ones for medicine this year was uh, by a guy by the name of Francis Fesmir. And his was for the termination of intractable hiccups with digital rectal massage. Yes, I saw this one. It's curing hiccups by sticking a finger up your bum. Well, I didn't actually look up the reference, but... Uh... That's what he's basically saying. Or... Honey, it's what the doctor said.
Once again, thanks for joining us this week. Tonight's all-star cast included Ian Wolfe, Lachlan Watmore, Kashina Allen, Mark West and Matt Clark. Diffusion was produced this week by Matt Clark over at the 2SER studios in Sydney. And we're sent around Australia by the CBAA. If you want to tell your friends about us or catch us from overseas, point your podcaster towards feeds.feedburner.com slash diffusionradio or you can find us on iTunes. I'm Jackie Pepper and we'll see you again soon for another episode of Diffusion. Diffusion.